The Ensemble Advice South Africa podcast is intended for professional financial advisors. All discussion is limited to publicly available information and should not be interpreted as legal, professional or financial advice. Ensemble Advice is not a licensed financial services provider and does not provide financial services. Before making investment decisions, you should obtain financial advice from a qualified financial advisor. I'm Louis van der Merwe, Certified Financial Planner. Join me every week where I get to have discussions with global leaders in the financial planning space to help you serve your clients better and run a more efficient financial planning practice. This is Financial Planners South Africa podcast. Portfolio Metrics is thrilled to bring you this podcast in support of our common passion for people and the evolution of wealth management. Our global business links precision investment management to expert financial advice through partnerships and technology. Portfolio Metrics is an authorized financial services provider. Comspace is a revenue management solution developed specifically for independent financial advisors. It is a web-based application that tracks, allocates, and manages advisor revenue. The system seamlessly reads commission statements from financial institutions and can address any permutation of commission splits. Comspace provides mind-blowing, out-the-box revenue business intelligence and analytics, along with super flexible reporting to effectively manage and grow your business. Welcome to another episode of Ensemble Advice South Africa. I've had to put on the Batman voice as Vessel uh, just shared with me some great tips for having a better radio voice. I have the privilege to be joined with the advocate Vessel Westhuizen. Vessel, you're a very big name in our industry for a really good reason. And I look forward to just having a lovely conversation about your history, the work that you're doing, some of the areas that we share a passion for and just thank you for being here in person so that we can share a coffee and a lovely conversation. Thank you, Louis. It's lovely being here today and I'm looking forward to our discussion. Before we jumped on this recording and we just, you know, we're sitting down here um, surrounded by books, things that have inspired us and I'm just thinking like this industry has changed a lot since you first started being interested in financial services, you know, the Center for Financial Planning Law being the, the groundwork for a lot of the people that we see making a difference today. Share with us those early stories of how you got into financial services. Yeah, it's very interesting, Louis. And I think not many people know that I've started, I've studied law, actually. I did my master's degree in estate planning, still one of the, the areas that I to today love to do and uh, while working at one of our bigger banks I got involved with as a legal advisor assisting with estate planning but I realized and I met a lot of financial advisors and I realized I want to get more involved with this world of financial advice and planning and um, I saw an advert I think it was in 2000 2001 about the University of the Free State, it's in the middle of South Africa, wanting a person to lead a center called the Center for Financial Planning Law. And I thought, I think I'm the right person for that. 
and I've applied and and uh, luckily just the year before that I did my postgraduate diploma through the university and I've passed that and so they've appointed me. But you know what was so interesting to me is realizing those first two years, there were no textbooks, there were no notes in South Africa available for financial planning. And the biggest reason why I got involved with this is the thing that I saw while working as a legal advisor for the bank, assisting financial advisors, is professionalism. We needed to increase professionalism in our industry. So for me, that was one of the big aims that I did. And uh, maybe I should share with you one of the stories uh, you know, realizing there were no text material, textbooks and so on. I sat there after two years and I decided I will call on, I think it's a global company called LexisNexis. And uh, I said to them, we need a textbook. And I realized they do have textbooks in investments and estate planning and, and all those subjects. And within eight months, basically, with the material they already have and with the input of some authors like uh, Dr. Marius Buerta that you know, mm. we created the first textbook, Financial Planning Handbook of South Africa, which is still used today. So that's how I entered the, the industry, you know, and uh, I must say I've also realized my second year of studies in law, I think that's when the penny dropped and I worked as a as an article clerk at a at a law firm that I don't want to become a lawyer or attorney. That that must have been a big impact in your life looking at the ad saying would you want to become the CEO <laughs> um after just studying this what went through your mind thinking of what you could make different or do differently after just finishing this postgraduate diploma? I think I think actually I've applied out of stupidity. You know, I just saw University of Free State. I thought it will be wonderful working for a university, being involved with this. But there was one thing that pulled me into that ad, and that's giving education. Learning and education is, is still to the, today close to my heart. And uh, I thought being involved with that and seeing that this nothing structured in, in South Africa for financial advisors and planners. That's really what pulled me into that. But I don't think uh, that I realized what I was up to. Um, you, you used the word CEO. And basically that boiled down to being the CEO because this center was managed like an entity on its own within the realm of the university. And I remember that after we uh, finalized the textbook that I've mentioned that LexisNexis told me that, uh, sorry, if you don't take, I think, 600 of the books, we cannot publish it. So I had to convince the university those days that we need to order X amount of those books. And the costs were, you know, over one and a half million rand. And you can imagine that's 2004, five we're talking about. And I recall sitting in an office with over 1,500 of these textbooks that we had to send to each and every student. So yeah, it's wonderful days. And I must say also that uh, 
while working with our candidates. And it changed quite a bit. Those earlier years, you had people that 30, 40 years of age and older that wanted to do, you will recall the introduction of the FICE Act. And so people were almost forced to study further and to do these things. So we had a lot of older people studying. And I realized that when we did the courses, the presentations, the examinations, that people cannot do simple calculations, you know, time value of calculations. So we had to enter that into the textbook and into the curriculum. So yeah, it was a wonderful experience. It almost sounds similar to building a business, right? Where the students are your clients, you have to figure out, are you getting in the products fast enough? Do you have the right mix? Do you have the right structure? And I'm just curious, if we think about universities in South Africa today, we have a lot of challenges. We have challenges around, you know, the fees that people have to pay, the quality of the education. I know you're no longer actively involved with these universities, but what is your take on South African universities specifically for financial planners? Do you think we're keeping up with global standards or are we falling behind? Well, what I can tell you, I'm still very involved with the Financial Planning Institute with the curriculum structure. And uh, I'm also involved with one of the major universities with their postgraduate diploma in financial planning. And then I know most of the people at the universities, there's about five, six universities that offer financial planning education. What I can tell you is that we do have some of the best people involved here. And what I do see, you ask about global standards and, and are we up there? Out of the 26, 27 member countries of the CFP uh, designation, certainly I think we're in the top five. Uh, and that being involved with the Financial Planning Standards Board, uh, the curriculum development and so on, I see most of the other countries. What I however see as the big difference maker with us is that a lot of people that's involved on the education side also comes from the practice side or still involves with financial planning in a day-to-day -day basis. And I think that makes a huge difference. When I look at some of the other countries starting now uh, with financial planning and financial planning education specifically, you must remember that financial planning only started in the late 60s in America. It's a very, very young profession. But if I see all around like Israel that have started in the last six, seven years, Italy wants to join now and some of the South American countries. The biggest problem we're facing globally in the education is that courses need to be delivered and the people that deliver those courses, unfortunately, do not have the practical experience and don't really know what's financial planning. They may be experts on tax. They may be experts on other areas uh, of financial planning, but they're not financial planning experts from a practice side, which makes a huge difference. And I think that's what makes us unique. Uh, I also do see that in the other top countries like the United States, like in Australia, those countries do have people also on the practice side involved on the education and learning side. It makes a lot of sense, as you're saying, you know, if you have the 
practical experience of sitting in front of a client, doing a financial plan, and then teaching people. Yet at the same time, we see these lecturers spending an enormous amount of time on research, publishing new papers and new ways of delivering financial planning. I want to find out a little bit why we don't see that as much in South Africa. And then at the same time, you now have journeyed into providing advice over the last seven, eight years. How do you think that's changed the way you bring across information or educate young financial planners? On your first question, I, it's really a problem in South Africa, research on financial planning. And with that, I mean on, on all areas of components of financial planning. I think the big reason is this only, like I've already mentioned, four to five universities involved with this. South Africa, I mean, if you just take the United States, there's over 350 universities and colleges in the United States. You know, I don't think even we have got 20 universities in this country, uh, maybe 30 if you take the technical colleges into account. Then also, your the people involved with our education are also, like I've said, practitioners. So they don't have the time to sit and do research and write articles. What I try nowadays is to be involved a bit. Marius Buta asked me the other day to write an article for him on tax and insurance. So I'm currently doing research. So I think we need to go the extra mile to do that as practitioners because there's not enough people fully employed or permanently employed at universities. But it's an area of concern for me, like you phrased. Um, and your other question, I'm talking now so much about the education. All right. You asked me about, I've joined now, I'm a practitioner now, I'm doing financial planning. Yes, about seven years ago, I, I made that decision. I realized being involved with compliance, being involved with curriculum and standards development, and uh, being involved in presentations, there's something missing, and that was the physical financial planning side. As legal advisor, I sat with advisors in front of clients. But then you're always in a secondary role. The buck does not stop with you. So I, I really decided, I think 2015, to push myself into the area of financial planning. And I must say the difference, the change that it brought to my lectures, my presentations, is immense because now suddenly... You know how it feels sitting with a client, walking the walk, talking the talk with them. So no, that's why I say that practitioners that's also involved with education is invaluable mm -hmm. for our profession and, and growing education in a country. Pistol, you mentioned your contributions to articles that Marius Puerta is writing. Starting out as a young financial planner, you can really be overwhelmed by the amount of information you have to consume, right? You have to learn about products, you have to learn about the markets, you have to keep up to date. If you could give some guidance to younger financial planners around some of the content that you think is really valuable to consume to improve financial planning specifically, what are other things that come to mind? I know you're also a learner by heart, uh, and I'd love to just hear what are the things you you read and make sure that you don't miss out on. I think the most important point, Louis, is to turn down the noise. I mean, if, if you're in a library, we're sitting here in your small library today, and if I look and I see the 100, 200, 300 books around me, 
it's very difficult now to make a quick choice and choose a book around. So decide first, what is your role in the next few months, the next year? Where do you need development? Later on in life, as you've obtained your skills, more knowledge, then it's all about maybe extra skills, extra learnings. Like yourself, you shared with me, for example, When Life Eats Art, a new book that you're adding to your library. Now you're already in that, you know what you do, you know what your client base are, and you want to enrich yourself to be a better financial planner. So my advice to young people is don't try and react. What do we need? What do we do? I mean, social media, if you just take that as an example, if you're on Facebook and TikTok and Twitter and Instagram, it gets overwhelming. So you need to choose what of that can help me in a learning sense, in a practice sense, to help me to be a better financial planner and to be better skills at what I do, uh, better skilled at what I do. And I think turn down the noise uh, and get focus. I love how you phrase that, just to say, you know, turn down the noise. I remember those beginning years. I used to look at my colleagues that you know, I've spent a lot of years getting the information and I wondered, how did you get to this point? And then a few years in, I realized that it's mainly maintenance. You get to a point where the knowledge all, they rhyme, right? It's a different theme or it's the same theme, but maybe a slightly different tune. And then you get to a point where you can just maintain that knowledge and keep up. You don't have to spend the hours and hours and hours. For sure. It's like doing a marathon. You cannot, if you did not practice, go out tomorrow and run a marathon. But sometimes you will practice, you will practice, you'll do a 10K, and so you'll move up till you do a marathon. But then you realize, but marathons are not for me. Maybe I want to do cycling, or maybe I want to do something else. And that's how you develop. But get focused first on this is my goal, and this is the step that will lead up to that building a base of fitness for, for sure. delivering for sure. advice. I want to go back to the fact that you mentioned that you're very intrigued with estate planning. Is that an area that you have improved in your fitness uh, to deliver financial planning in the area of estate planning? And, and why? Like, what about estate planning intrigues Vessel? <laughs> I'm laughing, Louis, because I think you've mentioned to me it's an area that you're not mad about. And, and that's how we differ. And... I think what drew me to estate planning was my legal studies and learning about trusts, learning about uh, your liquidation distribution. But I think the, maybe the biggest aspect of that is getting solutions for clients. Uh, I mean, we as financial planners do also uh, get to solutions for our clients. But what's the difference for me is you connect the legal side to those solutions and you come up with that solution that will help a client. And what I also see about estate planning is it involves the family of the clients. It involves the future of the clients. Uh, what will happen if that client die or family members die? What will happen thereafter? You, you need to, with estate planning, basically look into the future sometimes and discuss that with your client. But also, you know, your current structure, looking at maybe the companies you have, the trust you have, is that in place? Is that according to law? 
I mean, it's astonishing when I find out when you go through clients' trust deeds and, and you find that they don't even have a bank account, which is a must in terms of laws in South Africa. So I, I just think maybe it's, it's uh, because of my legal background and because I can help people and almost build a, a, a legacy for clients through estate planning. As you were saying this, I could see just how many parts of someone's life gets touched by the estate plan. How do you position this seemingly very overwhelming and very, very big task to a client to say to them, Mr. and Mrs. Klein, we're now going to do your estate plan. Like, is that something that they come to you to do or do they not always realize, hey, what I'm actually looking for is, is a plan for my estate? Like, what, are the, what are the questions they would ask to lead to do I need an estate plan almost? You know, it, it, it made me think about when I started as the legal advisor doing estate planning. Those days you wanted to show off basically to the financial planners and the clients your knowledge. I've got just a master's <laughs> degree in estate planning and you want to start with yourself and your own ideas of how to do estate planning and how you can save estate taxes and all those things. But we've also discussed through learning and wisdom, you realize at the end, like you so rightly said, it starts with the client and, and what the client asks of you. And I think it's, it's a slow, slow start. It's getting the story of the client. They will open up. They need to put on the table to share with you. Uh, for example, and let me quickly share a, a story with you. One of my articles that that a lady 78 years wrote, uh, read about where I wrote about estate planning and liquidity and so on. And she called me. I don't know this lady. She just called me out of the blue. And she asked to assist her. Now, that's for me a particular case where she comes to me. She's got a problem and I need to resolve the problem. But I need to resolve the problem in a way that fits in with her family and her scenario. Not how I think can be best for taxes and so on. And after she opened up about her husband that's got dementia or Alzheimer's and about her children and about all the struggles and, and what she wants. So at the end, it's for me to open up and not ask the questions really, but for the client to put it on the table and from there I can develop the uh, the analysis and the estate plan. So it must come from the client. And I think that's also maybe going back to your question, why do I love estate planning? There's not a lot of things as personal as talking about death. And uh, some of estate planning is about death. I sometimes joke with my clients, say, if I kill you today, Louis, this is what's going to happen to your wife. But it's a difficult conversation made easy if you do it the right way and clients know that you need to assist them. You really break the ice when they, if, I, if I kill you because you, you you think about hey if the bus runs you over and it's a saying that we love to use in Afrikaans specifically. Um, yeah maybe, maybe maybe it's only in South Africa that I will say if I kill you because people will, will not think that I'm really meaning that but uh, sometimes else in the world they will they will uh, worry about vessel's intentions <laughs> I wonder if the vessel of eight years ago would start with a client situation 
and not the technical side. Do you think that's something that's always been in you to start with the client and not with the technically correct answer? I think it's it's something that was always in me. The, the problem, however, is because, and, and that's maybe a negative of education and a negative of learning some things, that your skills are lagging sometimes. So when you're a new financial advisor or planner, you don't have the example of somebody else really. Maybe you were not led by a mentor as yet. So you're just running into, and what can you bring to the table? One or two things that you've learned in the past year or two. So you lead with your your learnings, you lead with, with your education sometimes. But as in the past 20 years, being involved with clients in different facets, being involved with people, you realize that those education, those are just tools to help the client with their goals and objectives and to resolve that for the client. And I think that's how I got to switch around. I always had it in me. I don't think that it's natural for everybody to have it in. But I think we lead, we tend when we enter the industry to to lead from the, the education, the learning, the knowledge side sometimes when we do planning, which is not wrong, but it's only a tool that you use in doing the planning. It's not the planning. I also see cl- people relate to stories. They want to know, like, how did that person overcome that? What happened? They don't relate to paragraph this, this, and this <laughs> says that we must do that. For sure. And, um, you know, if, if uh, for example, you, you know that uh, I'm more involved in diminished capacity currently. And um, one of those stories, my own mom, and I'm going to share it briefly, is that uh, 2017, 2018, I realized calling her every night, she's forgetting things. And uh, I asked her, can we go for assessment? The, the long and the short of the story was that uh, she's early stages of a vascular dementia. So that helped me now with that story of my mom to associate with other people in similar situations. I can relate to that. I can help them. And it's even... And, 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 and things like the plans that we write to our client. You know, I'm, I'm very, one of the courses that, that I educate in is, is the, what we call the case study. And the major impact of that and is the financial plan. I'm very critical about the financial plans that we prepare for clients in South Africa. It's, it's very, we talked about technical, detailed graphs. It's not telling a story, coming back to your story. I tell the youngsters working with me, say your plan must tell a story and the client must understand that story. It must be simple because otherwise the client cannot associate with your financial advice. Coming back to your story. (laughs) That reminds me last night, I was reading a report by Fidelity that says only 34% of the sample of high net worth individuals that they looked at had written financial plans. And I, I was wondering like, why is that such a small number? These are 100% of these people are working with financial planners, yet only 34% of them had financial plans. And it, 
No, it makes sense when you say that it, it's maybe not their story. It's not something they can relate to. It's a wonderful segue into this topic of diminished capacity. And it's something that I think we share a passion for. Because partly it feels like we're so inequipped in South Africa to deal with these challenges. Like specifically because a power of attorney is not enduring in South Africa. It falls away. Maybe can you give us a high overview of when people use power of attorneys, it might be a little bit more technical, and, and why it is that it falls away in South Africa compared to in America where they talk about an enduring power of attorney. It's something that you know someone else can, can action on your behalf. I get, put, your, put your legal hat on for, for a bit, Vessel. Yeah, unfortunately, like you've said uh, correctly, so that uh, power of attorney in South Africa, and I've got first-hand experience of some of my clients, and even in my own situation, just to use that as an example, uh, I've got a power of attorney, uh, you know, for my mom's business. And the unfortunate thing is that a power of attorney in South Africa only provide you the rights and the legal rights that the person that provided you the power has. So if you're, like in my example, my mom is still fine, she can still sign a will, she can still make financial decisions and so on, but should she deteriorate more where she lose some of those capacities, then I will not be, let's take in a practical example. I'm doing an online uh, banking for her. If she's in a situation where she cannot do it herself, she does not understand it, I will, don't ha- I will not have the rights to do that on her behalf. That brings me to a maybe a very important point, and I just want to throw it in here. Because South Africa's system and, and uh, hopefully I'm not jumping the gun now on you here, but we've got this power of attorney, which is not helping with people with mental uh, capacity uh, loss, and also people that's uh, got fin- diminished financial capacity. You cannot use it. So the only other alternative is either families keep quiet, and there's one or two of the family members that's then managing that family member's finances and how life on their behalf. Or you can go to court and you get can get what we call a curator bonus. First, a curator at litem, and they will write a report on whether a curator bonus is, is necessary. And that curator bonus will then manage basically the finances and everything. It's all put under that person or individual and they will manage it on that individual's behalf. And that's that's almost uh, the choices that we have. There's another one which is not really for, for high net worth individuals. So in South Africa, it becomes so important that you need to start very early planning. And that's where we as financial planners plays a major role to discuss with our clients if we start to see there's a problem with financial. And I'm mentioning financial capacity because that's the area where you first pick it up is clients' financial capacity goes. It's interesting you mentioned that because I was on a webinar last week with um, two doctors from America, Dr. Moira Summers and Dr. Carolyn McLennan, where they spoke about 
these early signs where it's almost before issues develop, we can prep our clients. Because like you rightly said now, when the problem's already there, it's quite difficult. It's difficult to transfer assets to trusts. It's costly to appoint curators. But before issues develop, we can have these warning signs. Are financial planners using the right tools to assess these warnings? Are we testing our clients? Should we be sending them a little survey to say, uh, let's test your your memory. Um, I'm just curious, like where, where can we start with this preemptive planning for something that for a lot of aging clients, you know, after after the age of 60, it seems to really become a big concern with with clients. Like the the probability of you having dementia, one of the forms of dementia is is quite high. What are the things that you think you'd be willing to explore with your clients to maybe look at how their memory or how the lack of memory um, plays out? Or do you think it's a case-by-case where you say, oh, I suspect something might be happening here. But even then, what then? Like now you suspect it. <laughs> what happens then? Louis, very difficult conversation. And I think there is no one way to do it. I think maybe the biggest problem is at this stage that financial advisors, and I will say financial advisors globally, we're not equipped to recognize people starting to struggle with financial capacity. Uh, And financial capacity leads to other things. With financial capacity, just maybe for, for the listeners, when you realize that the struggling with numbers, adding, deducting, not opening bills, not looking at financial things that may be budgeting and so on that that person did in the past. I will start first that I think we need a lot of, and, and I include myself on financial and mental capacity. And what can you do to establish whether this client's got the financial or mental capacity? Uh, I'm very, very maybe concerned if those clients become anxious and maybe I should and I've mentioned uh, my mom and she will not mind me sharing is that the process for me as a financial planner and advisor to tell my client I see you forgetting you're not doing this it's a very uncomfortable conversation and is it our place to 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 start that conversation But I also think that if we start to pick up things that we need to have a conversation, maybe with the spouse or somebody close to that person, and just ask them whether you've also picked up about this client, this and this. The second point is, I do not think that it's our role at this stage to step into the shoes of family members and to send the client a survey or to ask the client, it will become a very uncomfortable professional relationship. Yes, with the client's consent. I also do not think we're equipped in our education to deal with those things, to interpret those surveys and so on. So what will the need be of those? So for me, it's rather let the experts and those people deal with these things, deal with them. For me, it's more assessing the client and starting to open a conversation with them and the family members in a a soft way, a caring way, 
And then also to make sure, because at the end, you are giving the financial advice. And if you're giving financial advice to somebody that did not understand what you said because of the diminished capacity, you had full just as much. So we need to take care of that. I will be uncomfortable to, to step into the shoes of experts and professionals. I would rather be an instrument as somebody that assists the family or that individual to get to the right places to make the right choices at the end. I don't think we or I will not surely step into the shoes. Otherwise, I think it can become a very uncomfortable relationship in the long run. I think that's very wise. And at the same time, I know that we don't always have relationships with the family members. And maybe that points towards having a trusted contact noted on your system. Who do we contact when we worry about these things? Are we allowed to share some of the information with that person of which we're worried about? I want to read some of the the potential medical conditions that could lead us to incapacity, which uh, I was surprised. I mean, one of these things could be infections, vitamin deficiencies, substance abuse, and then we have, you know, more serious types of medication, mental illness, multiple sclerosis, Huntington's disease, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's, vascular dementia, and blue body dementia. And so it doesn't, like you rightly said, you are you, we're not doctors, right? And let's not play doctor with our clients. Precisely. Yeah, just just to to add to what you said, um, in in our family scenario, the cause of the vascular dementia of my mom was lupus. Lupus is an autoimmune disease that, uh, especially under women and younger women, that was the cause of that. And uh, I think what what we should do, uh, just to come back, is is just if you can play that caring role, that facilitator role, but that opens the conversation. And you rightly mentioned that when in your earlier conversations with your client, we need to know about the spouse. We need to know about the children. They must become part of this planning of the client. And I see too many times that we're focusing on one family individual member. And I think the times past that we do financial planning almost in a silo for this individual as if they don't have any family members or we don't talk to them and their spouses. And that's maybe going back and jumping to our earlier conversation about estate planning. Why I like that? Because with estate planning, it includes the whole business and family and you need to discuss all about the pros and cons and what can happen. But you're so right in suggesting that, uh, you know, and again, coming back, we're not equipped. We're not doctors. We're not uh, people that can, uh, we we there just to assist. And that's maybe to add to this, health directives, estate planning directors, to get instructions from the client on early stages, things like uh, a living world, for example, things like if this and this should happen to you. And one can have this imaginary conversation that, in my case, I normally tell people. And I tell them the story of my mother. And I've got three, four other clients also struggling with dementia. And I mentioned to them, it's a possibility. And let's say you get to that situation. How should we treat that? How should we uh, look at your financial plan? 
what will you see my role in this whole planning scenario with you? I think it's opening the conversation in a in an early stage, and we will be surprised how open clients then becomes to discuss with us, and that will show us the way. Uh, uh, jumping back again, I think sometimes we want to show the way. Sometimes we must let the client lead. We're the experts that need to guide them into a certain direction. We cannot guide them if we don't know where they want to go or what the problems are. We first need to establish that. I love that that role of the guide. And we're not the hero of the story. We're there to guide them. How do you tackle having relationships with multiple people? You know, when we think about a family, you might have one decision maker that typically might make big decisions around financial products and assets and remuneration, yet it impacts the whole family. What advice or what guidance would you give to financial planners that are thinking about building relationships with a family as opposed to one person? And I know this might be a tricky question. So I, think. I, I think it comes from the heart, how you deal with that, Louis. And what I mean with that is, let's say, for example, your main client is the husband, just as an example. The spouse must become just as important as the main client. And what you want to do for the main client, you must also look at the goals and objectives and the dreams of that other spouse client. And I think when you start to step into the shoes, let me give you an example. Um, just Tell me a story. Tell me a story. <laughs> Last week, I've experienced two of my clients, and I always tell them, and it's also a good start, to invite the spouses together. I don't like seeing just the one spouse. I always tell them that, you know, we're doing this as a team, so let's discuss it as a team. And in that discussion last week, the spouse will always, but we want to travel. We want to do this. And then I realized during that conversation that that person does not have a voice. So my objective is to listen to that other spouse, that client spouse, and how can I assist him or her to give a voice so that my main client hears and sees that. How can I do that? I can do that through the financial planning. So by showing the client and including in my plan, I heard that your spouse said she would like to travel, this and this. Will you also like to travel? Looking at your finances and your investments, you do have enough money. We can allocate this and that. So we facilitate this again, guiding that. But it's stepping in the shoes of that client, uh, that client spouse and then for the main spouse to help them so that their eyes basically can open. That's so wonderful and it, it reminds me if you look at the training by Bill Backrack and George Kinder and a lot of the financial planning professional training, they, they urge you to first address the non-dominant person or the person that's maybe not traditionally involved so much with the finances or doesn't have a strong voice and to, to create a platform for that person to feel comfortable sharing and to pull in. And yet we could do exactly the same with diminished capacity and health challenges and pull people in. Uh, it, it actually, it, it seems so obvious. 
assuming there's enough time, what do we do when the house is on fire, proverbially, around, I maybe don't have enough time, I've been diagnosed with this illness, how do you help clients filter out what is the most important to them? Or what, or what tricks and tools have you used in the past to help them figure out? Louis, it, it, it depends. But if you use the words the house on fire, then I think there's no legal capacity in all sense anymore. There's no mental capacity in all sense. That means the client cannot change their will anymore. Client cannot take business decisions anymore. So... It depends on did you start early enough. So let's let's start with early enough and then let's get back to the house on fire. That's why the conversations earlier on, if you've got a trust and you're a trustee in that trust, is what are the plans that we will put in place? Who's replacing you in terms of the trust deed? If you're a director in your company, if you're a shareholder in your company, what are those steps that we're putting in place to replace you? And at what stage will we replace you? Unfortunately, sometimes the house is on fire and you're now in this situation. And it's then that you'll need to make a call on will we appoint a curator bonus? What are those legal steps that we will need to take to maybe to change the directorship, the trusteeship, and then you will have to look at the legislation and so on. And then it's a support role for the family, more or less. So when the house is on fire, it's almost a maintaining and a support role that you start to get as a financial planner and to see where you can help to hose down the fire and to distinguish, you know, which areas are burning at this stage. And it's not an easy place. That's why I recommend to financial planners all, you know, be aware, have those difficult conversations. If you pick up when you do the analysis and, and, and you see that you can pick up when the clients start to change and their memories start to change, you start, it's having those conversations before the house truly on fire, because then your plans must be in place. Otherwise, uh, you will maybe be able to host down the fire, but you will sit with the house that's been down. And for me, this all points towards planning earlier rather than later, specifically because we have so little tools in South Africa. It's even more important. We hear countries like America and Australia talk about these things all the time, and they are even equipped to do it. So I look forward to seeing how we tackle this in South Africa. It's been a wonderful conversation. It feels like we're just getting started, but uh, uh, we are running out of time. Vessel, I want to wish you all the best in the work that you're doing by having created this foundation for professional financial advice and improving it every day. Thank you so much. Thank you, Louis.